welcome to Break the Mold. Think of this podcast as a place where you can get your dose of inspiration, motivation, and a shift in mindset as we invite extraordinary industry leaders and have real raw conversations of how they broke the mold in their industry and share tips on productivity, health, wellness, and everything in between. Hello, hello, beautiful people. My name is Jordana Fortaleza, founder of clean beauty brand, The Lifestyle Co. I am obsessed with everything self-care and have a passion for helping people be the best versions of themselves. With over a decade of valuable experience in business, I was inspired to launch The Life Academy. I am so excited to start this new journey with you. Hello everyone, I'm Diane Carante. I am a multifaceted publicist with a passion to elevate brands to their highest potential. My life mission is to never lose sight of your inner power. Gynecologist and speaking expert, Dr. Stacey Tanaway, aka Dr. Stacey T, breaks the mold by boldly and creatively normalizing the way we talk and seek education on women's health issues. In this episode, we step into Dr. Stacey T's gyno world of health and wellness, getting into the nitty gritty on what women's bodies go through, such as egg freezing, PMS, menstrual cycles, fibroids, and more. Well, nice to meet you, Dr. Stacey. <laughs> Thank you. We're so excited to have you on. Definitely different from all your other interviews that we've had in the past because it was all business focused. And this sure. is so valuable because we have obviously a lot of women listeners on our podcast and the content we're going to get from you today is going to be super valuable and we're just excited to get this conversation going with you. And thank you so much. This is such an honor to have you because obviously we want to know your story and your background, how you became a doctor when you decided to be a gynecologist. Yeah, that's a good question. So I decided long, long ago that I wanted to be a physician and I don't honestly even know exactly why because I don't have any physicians in my family I'm the very first one I don't really have a whole lot of medical people around me but it was just something that really like health just really drew me like I wanted to know the body I wanted to understand the body I wanted it was fascinating to me and I obviously you know when you're young and naive you just want to help people right and so I remember being 14 and wanting to all of a sudden be a physician and it just stuck. And I kept going and kept going with it in high school. I did a lot of like the anatomy and physiology courses and um, pre-med in college. And then just that, that was the only route that was going to be for me. And luckily for me, that's, it really truly has been my, my passion. And I've grown to not only be interested and love it, but really live it. And as evidenced by my social media, I, I chose women's health and GYN and reproductive health of all vulva and uterus owners, because I mean, there were several reasons. One, it's just fascinating. Two, it was me and I wanted to educate more people like myself and I wanted to make sure that people understood their bodies and their menstrual cycles and how that worked and sexual health and all of that, because we just, we don't get that enough. And I feel like it's something that's so kind of pushed, you know, aside and behind closed doors that no one ever talks about it. And then it leaves us in this very vulnerable place. And I wanted to break that down in significant ways and just make it more comfortable and more 
more comfortable for people and let people be more knowledgeable about their bodies. I always kind of throw in there that I'd be lying if I said that like sexism and medicine wasn't a big reason of why I chose OBGYN because I really hated being objectified in medicine and in, in medical school. And I felt safest in an OBGYN set setting as a practitioner. And I throw that in there just because I think it's an important point that we often forget about in professional even medical situations. But that was a part of the reason as well. And I just, I'm just lucky I love it because that's, it was the only route that I ever thought of. That's really cool to learn because like you said, there's some sort of stigma or some sort of like threshold that people reach Mm -hmm. that they can't like get passed through. So for you to vision that and see past that and then want to make an impact with it. I think that's very honorable because nobody really gets to that point or they get a little shy or scared or like in fear, like, you know, people kind of hold back just in normal conversations about talking amongst women, you know, like, Oh, this happened to me today. Or has this ever happened to you? And you're like you said, in your own words, like you're breaking the mold with just being that spokesperson, being that person to like make those conversations comfortable but also like educationally, I think that's amazing. Normalizing the terminology, normalizing, discussing all of that, I think is just so important. I just did another um, podcast not too long ago ago where we talked about sexual health in the US and sex ed in particular, and that how all of it is so just like fear-based, like all of our sex ed, both formal in school and kind of informal too, is very much fear-based don't get pregnant, don't get an STD. Like it's, it's just all fear driven. And I just don't want it to be that because if it's scary to people, then it's scary to talk about and it's scary to ask about. And that's just, that's not a great place to be. And that's not a great place to learn. And I really wanted to change that. I love this new light of way of communicating Mm -hmm. this whole realm that you're doing with your platform. I think that it's super helpful for a lot of women that that are not comfortable talking what they've been through or, you know, things that are going on with them. And, you know, like you said, normalizing everything when it comes to sex education, because I know for, for me, sex education did not come from my parents. It came from school. And um, even back then it was just, we, it was, I remember it was like fifth grade and I don't remember too much of it, but it, like you said, it was very like the fear mongering and all of that mm-hmm. uh, stuff mm-hmm. that was into it rather than really educating kids at such an impressionable age. You shouldn't do this. It was, there was never a reason why, you know, there, there was never like an explanation. So I love what you're doing in terms of the, the new insight and the new way of talking about it in a normalizing it in our society. And I think that it's a beautiful thing. And speaking of, and now that we have a, basically a new society where like women are a lot more successful, independent, they're taking more of that work role. What are your, what are your thoughts on, you know, the egg freezing and, mm. you know, women at the optimal age to actually carry a baby and all of that. Cause obviously there's a lot more women now that are putting that on pause because they right. want the career first. I would love to know what your opinions are on that or what you recommend. Right. I, I think that's such a good question. And it's something that, you know, over the past probably, you know, five to seven years, I've really made a point of working into my conversation at like my annual exams with patients, because a lot of people, like you said, you know, all, all three of us here, we're very career driven, right? So career, we're, we're, we're pushing that forward. And that's we're very career oriented. And I think a lot of professional people are these days. Um, and it's pushing the kind of the average age of childbearing 
back. It's pushing the average age that women complete their childbearing back further. And that can be a great thing for us in the workplace. But I think we need to do that with some education too, because just because society is moving forward with women in the professional roles, our reproductive system is not and cannot like we, we, we just physically, that's how our reproductive system is meant to be optimized at a certain age. And that's a younger age, but we just, we don't know that. Cause again, our sex ed is always fear-based. Don't get pregnant. Don't get pregnant because apparently when, you know, we were taught that it's just so easy to get pregnant. And then when we finally switch gears in when we're older and ready to sit down and be like, yes, I want a family. We realize that maybe it's not so easy to get pregnant. And I think most people need to kind of realize this and think about fertility planning or ask their physician about fertility planning early on in the process. So they just understand options and what's out there, what it could look like for them. Um, And so, yes, egg freezing is an amazing technology that we have now that that if you are getting into your 30s and you're thinking, well, I'm not ready for this right now, or I don't have a partner, or I don't want a partner or any of that stuff, that this could be an option if I want to preserve a little bit of my fertility for the future. Um, so egg freezing is a great option. The downfall to that is that it can be an expensive option if it's not covered by insurance, which unfortunately a lot of uh, people don't have that type of insurance coverage. Um, but it is something that needs to be thought about and probably needs to be thought about in 30s, early to mid 30s, rather than late 30s, early 40s, because the biggest thing that's working against us in terms of our fertility and future fertility is our age. And that's something we cannot change and we cannot turn back. There's no specific cutoff or age cutoff, but every single year counts. And every single year, our fertility does naturally decline. And so fertility preservation, like egg freezing is an amazing option but people need to know that that exists and people need to think about it early on. Yeah. I think it's such a, for me, I got my eggs frozen. So, um, yeah, yeah. And I actually, a lot of very successful women around me and I always try to tell everyone if they're planning to, just because I think it's like such a good, you know, just in case you have, uh, you know, just put it in your freaking back tool, take it out whenever you feel like it, you know, right. Some people forget about that sometimes. And it's something that I try to preach because I think that especially if you're so driven and everything else that could kind of just fall back. And, you know, everyone has their own time. Everyone's on their own journey. And I I'm all for that. I just think that when it comes to your, what you would like in life in the future, I think this is such a great option. Like, you know, there's no money that can be put onto your, on yourself, on your, on your future. Right. I feel like this is really important. So I appreciate you saying that I'm seeing a lot more women entrepreneurs that are just killing it. And I love seeing that. And so I thought that is really important for us to have that specific conversation, because I know that can just kind of get lost in the weeds sometimes when we're so busy in our lives, but because I feel like more women are going to want to know more information about egg freezing. Do you think that you should freeze your eggs once or twice? Because obviously, even if you freeze your eggs, nothing right. really guaranteed. Right. It's, it's, it's all about the numbers, right? right. Uh, reproductive technology mm-hmm. is a, is a numbers game. And with egg freezing, although the egg freezing and egg thawing processes are getting better and better every single day, you do need 
the numbers to kind of get that insurance that something is going to thaw and be normal and fertilize and then take because there's all these steps in the process that of going down reproductive technology to eventually get pregnant and then let's take a quick break and talk about the radiant glow oil cleanser by the lifestyle co it contains clean active ingredients like rosehip aloe leaf and bergamot which work together to brighten nourish and remove grime from the skin Best part, it keeps your face hydrated and leaves it a dewy glow after using. It's a perfect addition to your skin regime during fall and winter. It's honestly been my secret weapon to keeping my skin clear. Our listeners get a quick special code to try this results-driven cleanser with 30% off using Break the Mold at checkout at www.thelifestyleco.com. That's life for the Y. Now let's get back to the show. Eventually have a baby and the numbers of what you start with decrease with each of those steps. And so the, I don't know if there's any hard and fast rule, but really that's why the younger you are to do this process is better because your ovaries are more responsive at younger ages. Um, they're going to be more responsive to stimulation, to creating more eggs, to be able to retrieve more eggs when that, when that time comes. Um, and you want as many as you can get basically, because right. um, when you go to thaw them, you're going, the numbers are going to decrease because not every egg is going to survive the thawing process. When you go to fertilize, not every egg is going to fertilize appropriately yeah. after fertilization, not every Every embryo is going to be genetically normal and survive that process. So each step you decrease. So if you can start with as many as feasibly is physically possible for you and financially possible for you, that's just, yeah, more is always going to be better in that process. It's a great lesson. Yeah. I I know a couple people that's done it twice. Yeah. Um, Right. I remember somebody told me that they had at the first time, it was just like minimal. And then their second time, they had more. So it's really good to have it at least do it a couple of times if if this is something that you really want to do. Right. And and that's why age matters too, because every single year as we get older, the ability to stimulate your ovaries decreases. So at 30, you may not, um, you may get more stimulation than you would at 35, than you would at 37. Um, and so if you can make, know about these options and make those decisions earlier, that's so much better for you. Amazing. That's, yeah, let's hear it. I need to go run. I need to go run to the clinic now. <laughs> Every, you know, there's nothing wrong with being a independent, successful woman, but you also, if yeah, that you want, this is just, I, you know, I love that this is, we're having this conversation because to think about the future. So yeah. Also something that I have always wanted to know because I had fibroids and I've actually, I have a really great, I love gynecologists because of what I went through to be yeah. kind of you. When I was very young, I was in my, I had two benign tumors on my ovary, on my uterus, and they were like a size of two grapefruit. And it was the most painful experience, but the most rebirth of my life. Can you kind of explain to us a little bit more about fibroids or how mm-hmm. that can come up and what that can do to the woman's menstruation cycle? Because I know I, I'm sure I wasn't the only one at the time. People have fibroids too, but can you just explain to some of our listeners what that is? And also, you know, the menstruation cycle that comes with that and all that. Yeah, for sure. So fibroids are also called leiomyomas. They're benign muscular tumors of the uterus. And so the uterine wall is a, is a muscle and the muscle cells within the uterine wall can sometimes grow a little bit out of control and form these ball-like tumors of muscle called fibroids. Up to 70% of women or people who have a uterus will have fibroids at some point in their life, 70%, 70. But 
a smaller percentage of those will have fibroids that can get out of control. Like you said, like yourself, they can grow too, they can grow really large. They can grow in locations that are really uncomfortable or um, they can grow to a size or be in a location that causes periods to be really awful. Um, so if they do kind of get, most fibroids will remain small and you might not ever know that they were there or existed and they can go away on their own small percentage of women will have fibroids that do not do that and that can cause significant problems. Um, They can make periods extremely heavy to the point where you're bleeding heavily and can be anemic. Mm. They can, because they can grow into bigger sizes, they can cause pressure and bulk symptoms in the pelvis. So they can push. That must be painful. Yeah. They can push on your bladder. They can push on your rectum. They can make peeing hard. They can make Mm -hmm. bowel movements hard. They can make your periods, especially painful. Because if you think about a uterus, that's like contracting during a period, if there's a huge Mm -hmm. muscular tumor there, that's also contracting and bleeding, it can be especially painful. So, so they can cause significant problems. Luckily these days we're learning more and more about them because why they exist in certain people or why in certain people they get big and out of control is not very well understood. They are, um, they do tend to run in families. So if mom, sister, aunts all had fibroids and difficulty with them, then that does tend to run in families. So there's some sort of genetic component um, to it. And, but overall they're, they're really not very well understood as to why and who and, and how they come about in certain people, but not others. But we do have a better understanding of how we can treat them. And there's more and more options these days. There's more minimally invasive surgical options. There's a couple of medications that are on the market now. And there's some even less invasive non-surgical options that are kind of coming about now. So there's more available for us, but this is why we just, we need to focus on women's health so much because so much of what we go through and what causes us pain and difficulty and, and yeah, just difficulty through our whole lives is so poorly understood that like, there's only so much I can do because there's not enough funding for research to understand the background of all of this, you know? So we, that's all these conversations are super important because yeah, we just need them. Those symptoms that you said, all of that, that was me for a whole year. And yeah, I was 22 years old because that's, I had to wait for it to minimize my, on my uterus with all the medication I had to take. And, but that's exactly what I had to go through for a whole yeah in a year of my life while I was in design school. And I was just like, oh my gosh, my life is like crazy right now. I thank you for educating our listeners on what that is. Cause I know that even now I have friends that are just, they are uh, noticing that they, ha- they actually do have like a, a fibroid that just came out of nowhere, but mm-hmm. it's, oh, it's, I think it's in us. Right. But it, it kind of, it kind of becomes like dormant. And then it comes out of nowhere, right? Because if you're like stressed, maybe too, right? I feel like that. I mean, they're hormonally driven in some way, but kind of how we don't quite understand. So it, no one really knows why or how or why it decides to become a problem at a certain point in time. No one, no one understands that. Well, I'm so happy to hear all of this talk when it comes to stuff like this, <laughs> because this is all real women's stuff, you know, and I wanted to know how should women go about when looking for the right gynecologist for themselves? What do you, what do you think are some pointers just because obviously I feel like you're very well experienced and versed, but for those that are just really wanting to get 
into whatever issues they're going through. What are, what kind of tips and just things to look out for from what your experience is? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. And I get asked this quite frequently, actually. And I think it's one of the hardest things because there's, it's like, there's no good way to like vet a doctor. Now there's Yelp reviews on everyone, but those aren't Mm -hmm. always reliable because we always know that it's the angriest people that are putting down reviews. It's not always like the happy people that are putting reviews. So everything's going to kind of be skewed in one way. So you can't really rely on that. My best advice to people all the time is to really talk with as many women around you and say, like, just ask about their experiences. Do you have a doctor that you love that you really connect with? Do you have a doctor that listens to you, that you feel heard, that has really, you know, answered your questions and helped you feel like you understand your body. And I I really think like word of mouth as like awful of an answer as that might be is probably the best way to approach how to find someone that's going to be able to relate to you because obviously friends and loved ones, like you relate to them. And if there's someone that they trust, then it's most likely that you are going to mesh well with that person as well. So not the best answer, but I think that's probably going to be the most reliable. I also think that it's really important for women of color, especially to really find other physicians of color that understand and understand the the unique challenges um, to to them in particular and can can relate to that. Not that they have to be exactly from the same background, but someone who gets it and someone who's going to listen uh, and understand that aspect of life. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good point. Yeah, or I think just understanding how society views people of color because I just don't think everyone's in tune to the issues of systemic racism within medicine in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really does exist and it does skew how people are treated and the treatment options that are available. And I, I think it is important that people recognize that. I mean, a great example is just m- maternal mortality in general. So mm-hmm. Women of color who are pregnant are at higher risk, especially Black women, especially Indigenous women. And so if people, if you have a provider who doesn't understand that, who doesn't know that or in tune to that, it really just could put you at higher risk for complications and for bad outcomes. And we need to squash that somehow. And knowledge is the best way to do that. So you need a provider who's knowledgeable in in just all of those aspects. Why do you think women are scared to go to the gynecologist? Or like, I feel like some women, they don't like to talk about it. So yeah. like, what do you, how can you- Or some people in general. And, yeah. yeah. Put some I mean, light the, on that. The, because the yeah. gyno sucks. I mean, it sucks to go to the gyno. No one wants to be in my office. It's it's a horrible place to be because it's a vulnerable place to be. It's an intimidating yeah. place to be. And for some people, it can be really physically painful or traumatic place to be. Um, Mm -hmm. There's, there's nothing happy in my office for the most part. (laughs) And so I, I think it's, it's just a naturally vulnerable place. And so that's why the more that we can make it comfortable for people, the more we can empower people to be, you know, you know, in charge of their bodies or understanding their bodies or understanding just what's going on in my exam room. Like the more we can do that, the better and more comfortable we're going to make it for our patients, which who can then have better conversations with their friends and family, which again goes back to normalizing all of these things a little bit more. I, I hate the fact that, you know, my exam room is such a place of like stress 
but it's the nature of it. And my job is to like decrease that as much as humanly possible. Yeah, I love your work. I love your work. <laughs> yeah. That's I love it. that you're taking that, that boldness, be that person. Normalizing and everything. Normalizing it. Yeah. Yeah. I often tell, especially people who it's their first time, like seeing me, or maybe it's a, a young woman. It's her first time to the gyno. My, my kind of line that I use all the time is this is not my exam room. This is your exam room. You are <laughs> totally in charge of everything that's talked about, everything that is done, everything that is done to you in this exam room. You are in charge. We can do whatever you want. We can stop whatever you want. We cannot talk about whatever you don't want to talk about, or we can talk about everything you want to talk about. Like that, that's, I think is really important. It is your exam room. It is not mine. Oh, that's amazing. Well, we only have like five minutes left, but really quickly before yeah. in this whole conversation, <laughs> I feel like a lot of women want to know a lot about yeah. that. We get our periods and then prior to our period, we have PMS and then we mm-hmm. crave all these fattening foods. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how we can kind of minimize those symptoms? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's funny, like all over social media, or even if you just Google on the internet, like the phases of the menstrual cycle, you will find articles everywhere that says, Oh, learn about the four phases of the menstrual cycle. Mm -hmm. And every single OBGYN out there is screaming. There are not four phases of the menstrual cycle. Like, I don't know where this came from, but it's, someone has like mixed up everything and it's way more, it's a little more complicated to that. And I I have posts on it that try to explain it a little bit better, Mm -hmm. but there's actually two organ systems that relate to your menstrual cycle. There's your ovaries and your ovaries have three phases that they cycle through. And then there's your uterus and your uterus has its own three phases that it cycles through. But these, each of these that have three phases, they talk to each other. And so they kind of overlap a little bit. So there's not four phases of the menstrual cycle. The what they're talking about, they're, they're mixing up the ovaries and the uterus, and they're kind of like conglomerating them together and forgetting about some other things. But to make a long story short, when we talk about PMS, PMS symptoms often come after ovulation and ovulation happens mid cycle. So kind of right smack dab in the middle of your cycle about approximately two weeks before your period starts. And when you ovulate that follicle from the ovary that ovulates and releases that egg, the residual follicle starts releasing progesterone. And so your ovary starts producing more and more progesterone. And then your as your progesterone is starting to increase, then your estrogen is starting to increase as well. And as these two hormones start to increase, particularly progesterone in particular, it's starting to trigger some of these hormonal-like symptoms, the breast tenderness, the fatigue, the mood symptoms. And then a few days before your period starts, both of those hormones, they tank. They go like straight down into the bucket. They peak and they fall. And then that fall really feels like crap as well. And so you start feeling more and more PMS sorts of symptoms because you're peaking and your hormones are at the highest they're ever going to be. And then you tank them. Um, And so that's where a lot of the PMS sort of symptoms come from is this rise of progesterone and then both estrogen and progesterone just fall off. And we we don't feel good with either of those things. And that's why we get moody and food cravings and feel bloated and all of the above. Well, is there a tip that you want to give our listeners during these cycle times? <laughs> um, I mean, you're shedding all the light. So yeah, I'm shedding all the light on this. Shedding awesome. all of the light and fix it too. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you know <laughs> what? I know. Fix, fix everything. I try my yeah. best. 
Um, I think, so one of my biggest tips to people is like really to be in tune with your body, like track when you're tracking your periods on whatever period tracker app or calendar or pen and paper you're using, track those symptoms too. Okay. So don't just track your bleeding, but track all these other symptoms that kind of go along with it. So that way you can kind of get an idea of what your mood is like during what parts of your cycle or what your physical symptoms are like at what points of your cycle. So that's number one. So get to know your body by tracking not only your bleeding pattern, but all of these other symptoms as well. And then number two, it's doing things to help combat those symptoms. I think one of the best, you know, natural everyday things that we can do is number one, hydrate really well. And number two, as sometimes as hard as it is, is exercise. Exercise has actually been shown to help PMS symptoms and it's been shown to help um, period as well as period symptoms. So as awful as we may feel during those times, exercise can actually help make us better if we can get ourselves off of our asses to actually do it, which I know is super hard, but um, hydration, exercise. Oh, and then the last two things, get lots of sleep because sleep is so important to regulating our cycles and hormone levels and stress. So regulate stress, regulate stress, combat that and sleep plenty. This is actually one of my favorite conversations we've had just because I feel like women's health is so important. And if we don't have our health, what do we have? Why are we right? So, yeah. yeah. I always say that. So I, I love yeah. this conversation. I, I mean, I can talk about this forever. Like this is like yeah. my wheelhouse. So I love it. You're like our <laughs> right. fairy, our yeah. fairy dino mother. <laughs> love yeah. That. And I, we, I love that. I love seeing you also like reach off of just, I mean, you, you're published on parents.com, mm-hmm. which is like awesome. I think that's a perfect place for you to like, yeah. in all that, like all the things. Um, and then also you were, you've been writing and you've been sought as an expert basically yep. is what I'm trying to say, uh, you know, help educate in your way, not just on your social media, but through publications and broadcasts and the airwaves. So we just love seeing you doing that. And so other than what you've been doing, where else can we find you or how, what, what's up next for you? Are you going to be doing more of that? I am always on my social channels at act Dr. Stacy T dr period S T A C I period T. Um, that's where I am in TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, all of the above. And that's where I do most of my education. Catch new episodes every other Wednesday on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast as we invite new industry leaders on how they break the mold. Also, make sure to visit us online at breakthemold.com for updates and follow us on Instagram at breakthemold underscore podcast.